0: Hello, everyone. I'm Mark Tomasetti, and welcome to the final episode of the Flight Test Safety Podcast for 2022. Boy, this year has flown by, pardon the aviation pun, just like the last three years of this podcast have flown by. Yep, last month was the 36th episode. So I want to start off by thanking all of you for listening and hopefully sharing this podcast with others who could benefit from it. We've covered some great topics this year and talked to some amazing people. And my thanks go out to all of our guests who have supported the podcast and shared their thoughts and experiences with us. Now, typically, I have a history item to start off with. And this month, I thought I would see if I could find any data on flying or flight testing a sleigh. Wait, what? a flying sleigh? Yes, I know. But there are these occasional reports that come up almost every year talking about a flying sleigh. Now, despite the vastness of the Internet, I found very little. Oh, you can find lots about sled testing, but not so much for sleighs. You know, but being the curious and persistent person that I am, and of course having a fair amount of free time in retirement, I finally happened on a site that actually talked about flight testing a sleigh. Now, it had flight descriptions, pilot selection, and even some design details. It's pretty impressive. Payload, range, all-weather capability, and VSTAL, a vertical short takeoff and landing capability as well. Now, the propulsion system details were a little confusing, but that was mostly because I was not familiar with the conversion from horsepower to reindeer power or RP. But it was either 8 RP or 9 RP, not quite sure. And anyway, at this point, I can either confirm or deny the existence of flying sleighs. But keep watching the skies this month and let us know if you spot anything. Anyway, on to our focus topic for the month. And we're gonna pick up our conversation with Dodge Bailey, who is the chief pilot for the Shuttleworth Collection in England. Now, if you missed part one, please go have a listen as we talked a bit about Dodge's career and how he came to be flying the vintage aircraft in the collection, and also about the process for checking out new pilots to fly those aircraft. This month, we will hear more about the pilot checkout process, and more about some of those unique aircraft and what it's like to flight test something that is very much not new. So in addition to the flights done for training and the flights done in support of your summer demonstration series, you mentioned before that every now and then you occasionally have project flights. Can you talk a little bit about those?
1: Um, in that time, I've, I've done um, a few, what we'll call first flights. Though so Obviously, the first flight was you know, 80 years ago, but when an airplane's been out of service for a long time and then restored and is ready for flight. You know, if it's prior World War Two, there may be nothing known about it in, on paper. There may be no manuals, um, and all you've got to work on before flying that aeroplane is to trawl back through early copies of Flight Magazine and try and find some data on the aeroplane that might have appeared in Flight Magazine. Right. Um, and you might find, for example, um, a brief report in, in, in Flight Magazine or... Um, which might just mention what the wing section is, that will give you a chance to look at a wind tunnel result from that section, to give you an idea what the stall might be and what the stalling speed might be. Um, so you can do as, as much homework as you can um, before uh, doing this first flight. Um, um, and and we need to have a sort of rough idea what what the CG ought to be. So it's a matter of figuring out the standard mean chord and <clears throat> where the CG is when you weigh the aeroplane and what what might be a sensible range of CGs for the aeroplane. And we can establish rear CG limits by doing the standard sort of old-fashioned test of um, testing in a couple of CGs, measuring the way the elevator moves um, and then predicting where the elevator movement will go to zero, which is neutral stability. And that will give you the ARF CG limit and the forward one is harder to do but it's about running out of control because we land these airplanes in the store on three points the forward cg limit is limited by the ability to flare the airplane to a three-point attitude okay. um, and uh, so it depends what the where how the fuel is distributed that you might be able to go up with a very forward cg uh, and establish that limit and then burn fuel out so the CG moves off so you can land the aeroplane safely. Right. Um, alternatively, if you can't do that, you can still wheel the aeroplane on you know, without doing the three-point and then say, CG is too far forward, we'll need to move it back a bit. So um, that sort of stuff is real old-fashioned test pilot stuff. It's fascinating. Yeah, so um, that sort of thing um, you know, goes on and, and test pilots can maybe um, pick up a, a little project um, of their own to do you know uh, in, on the sidelines, really, um, right. to do that sort of thing.
0: So one question I didn't ask when we were out there, and it just dawned on me is uh, I assume that from time to time you still acquire new aircraft. When was the last what was the last aircraft that came into the collection?
1: Um, well, the most significant one was the sock of camel, which was built from scratch from the from the original drawings by a, a group of um retired engineers and it, effectively the deal was shuttleworth would pay for all the materials and supply the engine and these guys would build it as a hobby um and they you know they took a few years but they they produced a a late production <laughs> stock with <laughs> cannon um and uh and the top with Camel, um, although it's a very famous aeroplane and an iconic World War One fighter, is really challenging handling qualities because it's because of the 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 fact that the designer downsized the tail volumes, uh, presumably to save size and weight and so on, but put a much bigger engine in the front, it, and it's a big rotary engine, it, it means that um it's got no um Static stability, so it's unstable in pitch. It's also out of trim, and there's no trimming device on it, so um, you start the flight pushing hard all the time, and under the skin it's also unstable, which is a not very nice combination. Um, As the fuel burns off, the stick can come back a bit, but um, um, that's a bit odd. And then it's got some lateral stability, but the fin is nowhere big enough for the aeroplane, so you're always stabilising it directionally. And then the gyroscope of that big rotary engine with the prop on the front just dominates the handling qualities. So whenever you torque that gyro when you pitch the airplane or you're the airplane, that cross-couples into the other one um, and, uh, and just complicates your life massively. So <laughs> a good example would be if you're doing a steep turn, the airplane is pitching up. That pitch up in the, in the, onto the engine will make the airplane your right. So if you're doing a steep turn to the left, the airplane wants to your sort of nose up out of the turn so you need a left rudder to stop it doing that and that doesn't feel too odd in a left turn when you fly a right turn you're still pitching up and the airplane still wants to your right so you've still got to stop that with left rudder and now if you do a steep right turn you're using more and more left rudder during the turn and that doesn't feel right and obviously you can see the transition from one to the other quickly um is a bit odd you know so um that aeroplane was was quite um how can I put it i can't say it was dangerous but it ended up killing a lot of pilots because they were not prepared for it so they they in back in the you know 1917 they had flown something fairly simple maybe an avro 504 or something which is very benign and then sent off solo in a Sopwith camel um because they were only single seaters Right, and lose control within a minute. Um, so um, that was a, a quite an interesting and challenging project to get from this pristine aeroplane that these guys have made lovingly for the last ten years to actually, you know, fly it and not break it. So, yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, quite an, quite interesting. Yeah.
0: So I, I I know it's an unfair question, but I'm sure it's one you get asked a lot uh, to tell your 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 favorite airplane in the collection that you've flown, or or maybe even your favorite story from flying one of the airplanes.
1: Okay, well I'll, I'll do the first one first. But I don't really have a single favorite because those those areas it, it's just too diverse. Um, so the I have a favorite in the World War before World War One is the Blackburn Monoplane. It's got really good stability control. Um, all the others are horrible but that, that's really good. Um, uh, in World War One I, I think the Sopwith Camel it's the worst handling one there but it's the most challenging and the one you get the most satisfaction from. Um, between the wars it probably have to be the Prun-Engine Comet and again there was a, a fairly significant piece of work to get that flying again which um, I really enjoyed doing. In World War Two it it has to be the Spitfire. It's just wonderful handling qualities. And post-World War Two, the, the, the Chipmunk is a very difficult airplane to be for pure handling qualities. Um, but from a test pilot's perspective, the most interesting uh, project, if you like, was a, a flutter encounter. Uh, I think I showed you the video of the flutter encounter. This was on a 1930 all-wooden high-wing monoplane. And uh, I had done most of the flight testing on the aeroplane the the year before. The aeroplane went into the hangar for winter, and then it was pulled out. Um, we had an old flight in it, and then it was the first display of that aeroplane. And uh, I was doing a flypast in front of the crowd at you know 100 feet, and I thought, what is that noise? It, it sounded like you know if you go to a, a yacht marina a, on a, when there's a strong wind blowing. You hear all the halyards rattling against the aluminium masks. (laughs) What is that noise? And uh, I looked out of the wing and and saw the wingtip flapping up and down. Um, So I had aileron um, uh, wing flutter. Um, So I throttled back a bit and uh, eased the nose up and. I was doing 100 indicated, and there's a big PE on this airplane, so that's about 115. And the flutter continued as I climbed out, and then at 70 miles an hour indicated, just stopped. And at that point, the ailerons didn't work, or they they did it just because the cables have been stretched. So right in the corners, you've got some roll control, but nothing in the middle. But I turned the airplane around on the rudder and, and landed straight away. <coughs> um, and, of course, that grounded the airplane. The airplane's now unsafe. What are we going to do about this? Um, and, you know, do we try and fix it, or do we just take it onto the airfield and put a match to it because, you know, we, we, we can't use it as it is? So um, I decided to um, try and fix it. And uh, so I did a lot of um, research um, looking into flutter as a thing By NACA called Report 45, which gives you like a cookbook of how to fix flutter, particularly you know, control balancing and so on. And I used that and we did a lot of static tests on the ground to measure the wing torsional and flexural stiffness. Same for the aileron. Uh, We did a ground vibration test, figure out what frequency it was and where the mode lines were. Node lines were it was eight hertz oscillation. There were some secondary ones, but that was the main one. And uh, and the node lines told us where not to put the mass balance. We then uh, designed a mass balance to sort of and get that optimized that so it was the minimum weight in the most sensible place. And then when we'd done that, we had to flight test it. So I came up with a little flutter clearance program, no instrumentation there, of course, right. um, and, and just gradually built up in two ways: not got up in airspeed, but also built up in Cable tension. So the first flights were the absolute maximum cable tension, and then you sort of made stick wraps with a hide face mallet um, at gradually increasing speeds, Uh, and then we came down to um, a medium tension did the same, and then a low tension did the same, and we seem to have fixed it. But to me that airplane is like a a reformed alcoholic; it's just one (laughs) drink away from disaster. I learned a lot from that, and it was probably the most, my most significant test pilot project at, at the collection over the years.
0: Fascinating. Well, sir, thank you so much for taking some time out to talk with me today. I really appreciate it. And, and as I do with all the folks who come on the podcast, um, you've got a vast experience on a lot of great things in your background. So if you could pass on any words of wisdom to our listeners uh, that they would say, hey, if I don't remember anything else, Dodge said this, what would that be?
1: Well, particularly if you're a test pilot, getting involved in vintage airplanes, folks assume you know what you're doing. And often you don't because you, you, you know how to fly modern stuff. But these are different. Um, so I guess the, the, the watchword is never assume it's just another airplane because there, there may well be um, challenges in there that you haven't foreseen. So do your homework. You know, research, 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 and silly stuff like, you know, weight and balance, getting the CG in the right place um, uh, is really, really important. Um, you know, on, on one of the airplanes we had, uh, we were confused that this airplane was landing at the same speed as another airplane in the collection of a similar weight, but using 50% more distance to stop. Right. This was, you know, fairly early on in its program. And eventually I, we thought, well, maybe maybe the airspeed indicator is not that good. So it was stalling at 43 miles an hour. And if you put 43 miles an hour into the lift equation with the weight of that airplane, it required a lift coefficient of two. Well, this is just a basic airplane, you know, like um, with a Y section or something, which has got a maximum lift coefficient of 1.3. It can't be two. Right. So now we know. That, you know, the airspeed indicator was lying to us and then we went off with the GPS and measured it and sure enough there was a big error right. so it's really basic stuff like that so you know, never assume it's just another airplane and everything is going to be working just as you would expect
0: Perfect, well thank you again Dodge, I really appreciate you taking the time out uh, have a good rest of your evening there in uh, the UK
1: It's so been my pleasure
0: Take care yeah, You too, take care when we visited the Shuttleworth collection back in October, I was just fascinated and listening to Dodge tell that story uh, while we were there about how they go through the process of checking out new pilots. I thought that was something that we just had to share on the podcast. And if you ever find yourself over in England in the vicinity of London and have a little bit of spare time, then it would be well worth your while to go check out the Shuttleworth collection. You can find a link to the Shuttleworth collection in the show notes. Well, that'll wrap us up for this month and for this year. Just like debrief at the end of a flight, as we close out 2022, it's a good time to debrief the year. So what were your mission objectives and how did you do in achieving them? One of my objectives this year was to produce an episode each month that would encourage you to think and possibly even inspire you to act. Not sure I have enough data though, so it looks like I will have to extend the program another, oh, I don't know, let's say 12 months. I wish everyone a happy and safe holiday season. And until next year, be safe, be smart, and be ready. The
1: Flight Test Safety Podcast is sponsored by Time to Climb Training and Consulting. Motivate your team to succeed, accelerate towards your goals, and elevate to a higher level of performance. On the web at www.time2climb.com.